people who serve Christ make his priorities their passion. Not their priorities, his priorities. And caring for people is his priority. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, verse 19, we're going to finish up chapter 2, Lord willing, today we're in a study in the book of Philippians for the next several weeks. Paul has been highlighting, just in summary, the importance of humility. He defines humility, the first part of chapter 2, being of the same mind, the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Humility puts the needs of others before our own needs. Uh, humility produces unity. So he's talking about the virtue of unity and the means of producing unity is humility. When people practice humility, they refuse to be self-centered, they love and serve each other. Unity results from selflessness. Selfishness leads to division, to conflict. Humility produces oneness and harmony. And Jesus said, they'll know you're Christians by your love, right? The world is very attracted to unity because it is so rare. Selfishness is normal. Selflessness is supernatural. And then Paul, in the, in the, in the middle part of chapter 2, gives us the epitome, the ultimate example of humility, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, Paul says, Jesus emptied himself of his divine prerogatives, came all the way down from perfect heaven to sinful earth, took on human form at the incarnation in Bethlehem, born as a baby, lived as a human on earth, subjected himself to suffering. There was no suffering in heaven. Subjected himself to temptation. There was no temptation in heaven. Even though he was fully innocent, he chose to die for the sins of those who would choose to receive his gift. So that's the ultimate example for us of humility. And then Paul says, you now follow that example. He exhorts us to grow up in spiritual maturity. And we talked about that requires holy sweat on our part. We said that there's really two schools of thought. Some people say, let go and let God, and all you do is surrender, and magically you will be um, made mature. And the other extreme is, if it is to be, it is up to me, it's all up to me, and it's not up to God at all. And the reality is, you work as if it all depends on you, and you pray as if it all depends on God, because it does. God says your maturity depends on your effort and full dependence on my empowerment. We are to grow more and more like Jesus, which means we should be sinning less today than we did yesterday. And you should be sinning less tomorrow than you're going to sin today. We are to progressively grow up into the image of Christ and become more and more mature. He essentially says, since you're children of God, start behaving like children of God, right? And we live in, of course, a very impure culture, so when we live a pure life, that is a phenomenal testimony to this lost world. 
Now we're entering uh, Paul's literally human examples of humility, and he gets into chapter 2, beginning in verse 19, and he discusses something as mundane as travel schedules. He's talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus and their travel schedules. And you look and you say, what does that have to do with anything? Well, these two individuals are very, very instructive for us. They are human examples of the humility and selflessness and service to others that Jesus is the epitome of. They are living out progressive Christ-likeness in their lives. And what's encouraging about Timothy and Epaphroditus is they're people like us. They're fallen, sinful, redeemed, growing, maturing Christians. And Paul really walks us through a character sketch of two of these folks, and we can relate to them because they're fallible. The power of example is profound. More truth is caught by example than is taught by precept. More truth is caught by example than is taught by precept. How you live is a much more instructive lesson than what falls out of your mouth on Thursday morning at 8 o'clock. See, examples show us in real life what happens when you choose path A versus path B. Principles tell us what to do and what not to do. And principles tell us consequences. Examples show us. The power of human examples is profound because we actually can see someone else before us living out that truth, and we believe it's possible And if someone else is doing it. That's one of the reasons the Bible is so biographical. Scripture is filled with the histories of men and women like you and I who've made choices and experienced consequences, both good and bad. By the way, anytime someone's mentioned in a Bible... They're either mentioned as an example, do what they did, or a warning, do not do what they did, right? They're either examples or warning. So Paul's going to flesh out the principles that he's talked about in chapter 2 in the lives of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Let's open the narrative in verse 19. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, but I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Here's the principle. People who serve Christ make his priorities their passion, and caring for people is his priority. Let me repeat that. People who serve Christ make his priorities their passion, and caring for people is his priority. He talks about hoping in the Lord. He says, I hope in the Lord to do this. We use this phrase, Lord willing, I'll do this. Lord willing, I'll do that. The foundation of everything in the Christian life, the foundation, is to fulfill the will of God for your life. If God is really sovereign, which means owner, master, Lord, then everything we do will be submitted to him. The sorry truth is, is that most people, many Christians, make plans without consulting God first. What we typically do is make plans and then ask God to bless it. We say, God, here's my plan. Isn't it brilliant? You should just put your holy blessing on that and make it happen. Right? What that is is practical atheism. If you're planning without prayer, you're a practical atheist because you're living life without the sovereignty of God. 
Ooh, you better have some coffee behind that one. James 4.13 says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. That's human planning. Tomorrow you've got a calendar. I know you've got it all written out. Here's what I'm going to do and when and where and why. James 4.14 says, Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. See, Paul lived in a continual state of dependence upon the Lord. He didn't ask God to bless his own plans. He laid his circumstances before the Lord and asked God for his point of view and his plan. Paul was hoping to send Timothy to Philippi. But if God had another plan, Paul would submit to the Lord's leading. Paul wanted to send Timothy to Philippi, the church, so that he would be encouraged when Timothy brought word back to what was going on in Philippi. The purpose was to send Timothy to Philippi to diagnose their spiritual health. They had some problems. And to help Timothy correct any spiritual shortcomings in the body, in the church family at Philippi. They were having problems with unity and division and gossip right? Judea and Syntyche were at odds. Two women in the church were fighting with each other, and the church was taking sides, and Paul says we have to deal with that. They were not living the life of unity. That's one of the reasons why Paul wrote about unity, because the church wasn't living a life of unity at that point. Furthermore, they were under attack by false teachers. Paul would have gone himself, except he's a prisoner. He's got a soldier chained to him 24-7, so he couldn't go, so he was going to send Timothy. Now, what do we know about Timothy? Well, we know he was probably born in Lystra or Derby. His mother was Jewish. His father was Greek. He was very knowledgeable about both Greek and Hebrew history, culture, and religion, so he was going to be a very effective cross-cultural missionary. He became Paul's protege on Paul's second missionary journey, probably converted on Paul's first missionary journey. And they had been working side by side for years. They planted churches and worked together with churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, Ephesus, Rome. They've been working together for more than 10 years now and have been through lots and lots of things. They're both in Rome. Paul's in prison. Timothy's there and is working with him and helping him. And Paul describes Timothy and he says, No one else has a kindred spirit but Timothy. Now, the name Timothy means honoring God or precious to God. So if you name your child Timothy, that is an absolutely delightful name. Kindred means matching or corresponding, and it usually refers to a blood relative. You know, my kin, that's what we say in the South, you know, kin, blood. And we're talking about someone who shares a common heritage, a common parentage, a common likeness. So it's a matching, it's a corresponding. Paul often referred to Timothy as his son of the faith, his brother, his co-worker, his fellow servant. It literally means they were of one soul. One soul. Soul brother. They had the same spiritual DNA. In contrast to Timothy, the city of Rome, the church in Rome, has many Christian pastors, some of which are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ out of love, and some are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ out of envy, selfishness, uh, self-centeredness, glory, etc., etc. Paul dealt with that in the prior chapter. Jesus had said, when a disciple is fully trained, they will be like their teacher. Well, 
Timothy was like Paul. He was kindred spirit. And he said, no one else but Timothy is going to genuinely care about your welfare. Timothy obviously was sympathetic, compassionate, concerned. Jesus had defined a good shepherd, which by the word pastor means shepherd, so our our pastors are shepherds. Jesus said the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Timothy loved the sheep of the flock enough to sacrifice for their welfare. He was clearly burdened for the church at Philippi. He cared deeply about what they needed and how he could meet those needs. And for years, Timothy has served as Paul's emissary, Paul's troubleshooter. If there's problems in a church and Paul couldn't be there, he was always sending Timothy to jump on a he didn't leave on a jet plane. He left on a very, I'm leaving on a jet plane. Remember that? Peter, Paul, and Mary. Anyway, slow ship transport. It took a long time. But he was the emissary, and Paul would send him to uh, find out what was wrong with other churches, Corinth, Ephesus, things like that. Now, when you think about it, this required vast amounts of flexibility on Timothy's part. Paul said, I need you to go to Ephesus. How long? I don't know. Could be open-ended. Stay there until it's fixed. Could be six months, could be three years. That's a lot of flexibility. That's a lot of sacrifice of your personal schedule to say, I'm available wherever the Lord wants me to go. Wow. He said, not only will Timothy care about your personal interest, but in contrast to that, most people in The church seek after their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. He's talking about people in the church. He's not talking about people that don't know Jesus. Timothy's whole life was about Christ. As far as we know, he never married, never had a family, never owned a home. He was available 100% of the time wherever God wanted to use him. We would call Timothy a spiritual road warrior without the comforts of a hotel. He was always available wherever he was needed. He was single-minded. His interest was Jesus' interest. He was passionate about whatever was a priority for Jesus Christ the King. David wrote about this in Psalm 27. He says, One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. So David the king had everything you could imagine, and he said, there's only one thing I really want, and that's the Lord. And not only does he say, I've prayed about it, I've asked, he said, I'm seeking it. And remember we talked about God works in you, you work out toward your maturity. David says, I'm not only praying for more of God, I'm actually putting it into shoe leather and seeking the Lord, which means I'm spending time in his word, I'm praying, I'm worshiping. He's actually putting shoe leather to it. God was the center of gravity in David's life, and everything else revolved around his relationship with the Lord. You know, we know many people who dabble at many things. You know any dabblers? We call it putter. We putter around the house, right? You putter? I putter from time to time. I'm not very good at it. There's nothing wrong with puttering, but if you spend your life puttering... Satan's a master at distracting us from the path God's called us to follow. Have you ever noticed that a deep life, a deep life is almost always a narrow life? 
Have you ever noticed that Tiger Woods is not known for bowling? What does Tiger Woods do? Golfs all the time. In order to do anything well, you must say no to almost everything else. And we live in a society that distracts us into trivia 24-7. A famous concert violinist was asked the secret of her success. Planned neglect was her reply. I used to get up, do all the chores, and when everything else was finished, I would pick up my violin and practice. That prevented me from accomplishing what I needed to do on my violin. Now I plan to neglect everything else in life until I've finished my violin practice. Alcoholics Anonymous has their first principle is first things first. Major in the majors. The minors will take care of themselves. To do a few things superbly well, we must do some things only adequately. And most things, not at all. See, we need to know what God's calling us to do so we can do it well. Timothy was extremely clear on the priority of the gospel in his life, and he submitted everything else to that call of God. So whatever God's calling you to do, it will require sacrifice. Which means there's a lot of things in life you're not going to be able to do if you're going to spend time accomplishing what God wants you to do. A distracted life comes from a double mind. A double mind comes from doubting God's word. A double-minded person has more than one master. Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. A double-minded person with more than one master is unstable and wavers between paths and masters. James puts it this way. He's talking about wisdom. He said, but if any of you lack wisdom, there is a source. And it's not Facebook. It's the Lord, right? But if you're going to ask him, God for wisdom, ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in his all his ways. Now, Timothy is the opposite of this. Timothy is single-minded. He was, his interests, his passion were the priorities of Jesus Christ. Jesus just wasn't an item on his priority list. Jesus was the very top of his list. Paul gives us an opposite example in the very end of his life, 2 Timothy 4, the last letter he wrote to Timothy just before he was beheaded. He said, Demas, one of his associates, has forsaken me having loved this present world. Demas was double-minded. He loved Jesus, but he loved the world more. And you know lots of people that are caught between Pursuing God, pursuing the world, they have a foot in both worlds. Now, you know what happens if you have one foot on the dock and one foot in the boat? You get neither. You get wet. That's what you get. 2 Timothy 4, 2, 4, same book, same time frame. Paul says, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who would list him as a soldier. See, an active soldier often lives inside civilian culture, right? We see them. But their mission 
is military. It's not civilian. Even so, we live in a physical world, this planet. But we are people of faith and citizens of heaven, children of God. We serve our king's mission, not the mission of this world. This world system, as you obviously know, is under the influence and control of Satan. We physically live in this world, but we do not share the DNA of this world. We have a new nature given to us by Jesus Christ. The mission of Jesus Christ is not to save this, this world system. It's to redeem God's elect out of the bondage of this world system and use them to bring the gospel to save others. See, if you're an active duty soldier, you can get a call anywhere, anytime from your superior officer, and they, you are expected to follow orders immediately. Which means, I'm preaching to myself here, are we available 24-7 if God picked up the phone and calls? Are you available? Or would you say, Lord, um, let me take a rain check on that command. Call me back in four days. I'll have a little more space in my schedule for you then. It doesn't work too well. Timothy was available, and God used him mightily. Verse 22. But you, the church at Philippi, know of Timothy's proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me, and I trust in the Lord that I myself also shall be coming shortly. Here's the principle. People who serve Christ endure hardships, which produces maturity and spiritual usefulness. People who serve Christ endure hardships, which produces maturity and spiritual usefulness. He uses a very interesting term. He says, proven worth. Proven worth. That means approved after testing. And what it refers to is metals. You purify metals through what? Intense heat. You're putting intense heat on this metal. So Timothy had been tested through trials and in the trenches while serving Jesus Christ. Timothy's integrity was demonstrated by how he had lived for years, and the church had seen how he was faithful. So Timothy was not unknown to the church at Philippi. He was part of the founding of this church at Philippi, and they had seen how he worked in the furtherance of the gospel. Timothy's whole life was about the furtherance of the gospel. Have you ever thought about it? He had no spouse, no children, nothing said about his family, his friends. He had no regular paycheck, had no home address, had no predictable life, didn't have a 401k, didn't have health insurance. We all trade our lives for something. What are you trading your life for? In the last week, God gave you 168 hours. I know it didn't seem like that, but you got 168. And we choose to exchange that 168 for something. The week is done, last Sunday to this Sunday. All you have left from that 168 hours is what you traded it for. So if you were going to look and say, Brad, in the last 168 hours, here's what I swapped my time for, and here's what I have to show for that 168 hours. What's in the bank account that you swapped 168 hours for? We need to know that. Timothy traded his life for the gospel because he was committed to Christ more than anything else. There's an old phrase, I'm sure you've heard it, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. 
Paul describes Timothy, he says, he served with me like a child serving his father. And the word serve here actually means slave. So Paul and Timothy were slaving side by side for the growth of the gospel. Now it doesn't say Timothy was Paul's slave. They served together. Timothy served Christ and submitted to Paul out of respect, not because Paul demanded it. Paul says we're equals. Timothy's point of view, he submitted to Paul in the same way that a child would submit to their father because they love him. Now that's the life of Timothy. He also gives us a brief character sketch of a character named Epaphroditus. Verse 25. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. Here's the principle. You're not going to like it. People who serve Christ adjust their schedules in order to meet the needs of other people. Now see, that runs right into my selfishness. It's true. I submit to this, but my flesh doesn't like it. My flesh wants to be the center. That's not what God's design is. Let me say it again. People who serve Christ adjust their schedules in order to meet the needs of other people. So this letter, the Philippian letter, is being hand-carried back to the church at Philippi by Epaphroditus. He's a member of the church at Philippi. The church had sent him to Rome to be of an assistance to Paul when he was in prison. Remember, Paul's been in prison now for almost four years. Two years in, in Caesarea, northern Israel, beautiful spot up there on the water, except you're in prison, it's not so beautiful, but it is a gorgeous spot. And now he's been two years in prison in Rome, chained to a Roman soldier. So he's been unable to work. So the church at Philippi collected an offering, sent it to Rome with Epaphroditus. So he was a delegate from the church at Philippi to Paul in Rome, and he was a godly and trustworthy man. He not only was to deliver this financial gift, he was to stay in Rome. Church said, you stay in Rome and minister to Paul. He's in prison. He's been in prison for four years. We've got to find out what he's doing, and you need to help him at that point in time. We know that he must have been a man of proven character because they entrusted a rather large offering, financial gift, to carry it to Rome. If they thought he was corrupted by greed, they would not have entrusted him. And by the way, this is not a short journey. Philippi to Rome is 800 miles on foot. Now, we drove in from Tucson last night, and it's 600 miles. And it's about 10 hours of driving. If I drive less... Marin Drive, more. Yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, I did obey the law. I didn't say I wanted to obey the law. I said I obeyed the law. The car was out of alignment. Anything over 65, it started shimmying like a drunk in a windstorm, so I was forced to obey the law. How about that? <laughs> yeah, true confessions here, you know. The Lord knew what I needed to do to obey the law. Here's the interesting thing. Once you get over 90, it got really smooth. <laughs> I like the desert between Phoenix and California. It's 75, and you know, at 90, it was nice and smooth. Then you get to California at 70, now you got to go 65. Anyway, it was just interesting. Why am I telling you all this? <laughs> yeah, we were talking about 800 miles on foot, and you could walk 20 miles a day, roughly 20 miles a day. So it's six weeks under the best of conditions. In really bad conditions, it took months, of course, and there's always robbers waiting for travelers to attack. So Epaphroditus is proven character. He's carrying a large gift over 800 miles over a six-week period. 
Now, we don't know anything about him, about his personal life. We don't know whether he was married, no family. We don't know. We don't know what his vacation was. We do know that he had a servant's heart. He was willing to stop doing whatever he had been doing, go to Rome and serve Paul for an undetermined time frame. Now, that's really amazing. The church said, you pick up, take this gift, go to Rome, and as they say in the movies, we'll see you when we see you. Right? I mean, it was, he adjusted his schedule. His entire life was laid down to meet the needs of Paul and the church. Well, he must have had, obviously, a large track record of service to this local church. He probably was a deacon, one who served by assisting the elder shepherd leaders of the church, and he was obviously a man of great courage. He was an, uh, there was a lot of opposition to the gospel in Philippi. Philippi was a, a tough, tough town, and there was much more opposition in Rome than there even was in Philippi. He was going to be going to Rome, and he was going to be of an assistance to Paul. Now, Paul was an enemy of the state. He was on the hit list from Rome. Now, you're going and you're saying, I'm going to be an assistant to a known enemy of the state, which means Paul could have been executed. Those who supported him could have been implicated in his conviction as well. So going to Rome was not just going down to the local drugstore, picking up a prescription and coming home. It was a dangerous mission, and he chose to accept the assignment anyway. Epaphroditus was a very common name. The Greeks had a goddess named Aphrodite. The Romans called her Venus. And she was the goddess of love, beauty, and luck. And the name of Paphroditus means favorite of Aphrodite. Now, needless to say, the goddess of love, beauty, and luck is a very popular goddess. And Epaphroditus was a very common name, right? The name of Epaphroditus was associated with luck, and when people would roll the dice, they would say... Paphroditus, which means luck. Luck be a lady tonight, you know, from Guys and Dolls. Anyway, so it was named, he, it was a popular name. And his name tells us he was born into a pagan Greek home. No God-fearing Jewish mama or daddy would ever name their child favorite of Aphrodite, right? Wouldn't happen. We know that at some point, Epaphroditus converted to Christ. We don't know when, but we do know at this time he was tested, seasoned, and a faithful servant of Christ. Paul uses five titles to describe Epaphroditus' character. The first three describe his relationship to Paul. He calls him my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. They have a common spiritual birth. They're brothers in Christ. God is their father. They've been adopted into the family of God through Christ's work on the cross. And this word brother conveys an idea of fellowship, affection, Common parentage, they both have Christ, right? And also personal loyalty. But he goes beyond that. He says, not only my fellow brother, my fellow worker, describes what we do. Paul often used this title to describe people who worked with him side by side in the ministry. It has the idea of a co-worker or a colleague, one who labors with you toward a common goal. Paul and Epaphroditus had worked together in Philippi to build a church there. The goal was the gospel. And they shared that goal, so they worked together. And he also goes even further and says, my fellow soldier. Now that implies common enemies, right? Soldiers fight enemies. And if soldiers don't fight enemies, they have no purpose for being. This title, fellow soldier, was a title of respect and honor. 
When it was used by a superior officer, it actually elevated the soldier to a position of equality. So when you had a general who said to a private who had, who had exercised great valor, says, my fellow soldier, it was really a way of elevating that soldier to equality with their commanding or superior officer. So Paul is giving Epaphroditus a title of honor when he says, my fellow soldier. Clearly, Paul had spiritual warfare in mind here because he was talking about ongoing battles, and he had Epaphroditus had been involved in spiritual warfare in Philippi, not only human, but also demonic. So he's talking about three things that describe his relationship with Paul personally. Now he talks about descriptions that relate to Epaphroditus' relationship with the church. He says, your messenger, your minister. Now, the word messenger means apostolos, apostolos. It's where we get the word apostle. Now, he wasn't a capital A apostle, you know, capital A, one of the 12 apostles. He was a small a apostle. Capital A apostles, Matthew, you know, the, the, the James and John, and etc., they were apostles of Jesus Christ. They had seen the Lord risen, and they were appointed by Jesus himself. Small a apostles were appointed by the church. They were messengers in the same way, but they were appointed and sent out by the local church. So Epaphroditus had been sent out by the local church at Philippi, and they sent him to Paul. And they sent him with money, they sent him with a message, and they sent him with a ministry. The money obviously was for his material needs. You know, I know it's hard to believe, but missionaries actually have bills to pay. When you donate money to, to the church and we send it to missionaries, some of that goes to pay light bills. They need light. Some of that may go to pay air conditioning bills. You know, some of that may go for Bibles. But, I mean, it's custodial. Bills have to be paid. And obviously, they wanted Epaphroditus to send a message that your church loved him. But most importantly, they send him to minister. Now, the word minister means to serve. To serve means to work for the benefit of somebody else. So they commissioned and sent him to take care of Paul in whatever way Paul needed to be taken care of at that point in time. So Epaphroditus was not only a messenger, he was a shepherd. He was a servant. He was a caregiver for Paul and for the church. Why did that happen? Verse 26. Paul's going to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi, and now he's explaining why he's going to send Epaphroditus back to Philippi. It says, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly, in order that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned about you. Therefore, receive him in the Lord with all joy, and hold men like him in high regard, because he came close to death for the work of Christ." Risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. Here's the fourth principle. People who serve Christ accept the risk of not knowing all the consequences of their commitment to serve him. People who serve Christ accept the risk of not knowing all the consequences of their commitment to serve him. Now, we know that Epaphroditus loved the local church in Ephesus. When they heard, the church at Ephesus heard that he was sick, they were worried about Epaphroditus. 
and Epaphroditus was distressed because they were worried. Get that? He's sick, they're distressed, he's worried about their distress. They must have had a great relationship. Apparently, Epaphroditus came close to dying. Now, there are two schools of thought about how that occurred. Some commentators believe that he worked so hard, he worked himself to the point of exhaustion for the gospel and almost died. Others believe Epaphroditus was close to being martyred for his faith in a very hostile environment as Rome. They believe he put his neck on the line over and over again, did not compromise the gospel in order to placate the Roman authorities, and he almost was martyred for his faith. Now, Rome was a very hostile environment. And if that's the case, Epaphroditus could have been close to death for both reasons, but guaranteed there was a lot of opposition. And number two, we knew he was a very diligent man. So he could have came close to death on both of those fronts. Now, Paul's writing this section. He says, I'm sending Epaphroditus back home, and I'm writing this letter to you, but I need to tell you why I'm sending him home. Because they hadn't heard from him in some time. I mean, they didn't have text messaging, instant communication. It was months. And they may have thought that Paul was sending him home because he was unreliable. You know, I mean, if Epaphroditus was so effective in Rome with Paul, why was Paul sending him back home? Paul says, I'm sending him back home so that he can form, inform you about how I'm doing. They had sent him there to find out how Paul was doing. So he says, I'm sending him back so he can tell you how I'm doing. Furthermore, and so you can see how he's doing. That way, you will stop worrying about him, and I can stop worrying about you, right? He needs you, and you need him, so I'm sending him back home. And by the way, when he shows up, welcome him, embrace him, receive him, honor him, and respect him. He did not fail in his ministry back home. He actually risked his life for the gospel. Now, this word risk in Greek is fascinating. It literally means to roll the dice. It means to gamble with your life. It means to expose yourself to danger. In early church history, 2nd, 3rd century, there was an association called the Parabolani. Let me spell that for you. P-A-R-A-B-A-L-A-N-I. Sounds like Parabolani. It's Parabolani. B-A-L-A-N-I. They were hospital attendants. And they were members of a brotherhood. And they swore an oath to voluntarily take care of the sick and bury the dead. But they swore an oath to take care of those with contagious diseases, knowing that they could easily become affected and die with the same disease of those they were taking care of. Kind of makes COVID look a little in perspective, right? Now, they called themselves a parabolani, which literally meant the gamblers, because they were gambling with their lives every time they went into a room or a ward to care for somebody with a contagious disease, to care for them. And they literally gambled with their lives to complete a mission of mercy, and their hero was Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus held nothing back. He was all in for the gospel. He was at risk of losing his life, and he was willing to gamble with his life for the sake of the gospel. Now, we know that God protected Epaphroditus from death because his work wasn't finished, but Epaphroditus said, if God chooses to take me, I'm okay with that. He would agree with Paul. What did Paul say in a few verses earlier? For me to live is Christ, and to die is what? 
gain. You know something? As we age, we know more people in glory than we do here. We're about at that line now. You get to be 75, 80, you know a lot more people in glory than you know here. That's where we're headed. And let me tell you, we underestimate the glory of heaven. We overestimate the value of being here. Followers of Jesus through the ages have often risked their lives to minister to the lost. In AD 252, the city of Carthage had a terrible plague. And the city was so terrified, they refused to bury their dead. When someone was sick, they literally threw the body over the wall. Your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, over the wall. So at the risk of their own lives, the Christian bishop Cyprian and his church family went into the city, nursed the sick, and buried the dead. Compassion, mercy, the love of Jesus. And the influence on the lost in that city was profound. Because when you risk your life for the gospel in order to love someone, you, no one doubts that it's sincere. They will know you are Christians by your love, not your knowledge. Remember the story of Esther? You've read the book, short book, profound book. She was a young Jewish woman who was selected by King Xerxes to be his queen. And when the king's prime minister, Haman, the Hitler of the Old Testament, plotted to exterminate the entire Jewish population, she chose to go in and appeal to Xerxes to save her people. Now, that was not a risk-free act because the law of the land held that if the king did not hold out his scepter of acceptance to anyone who came before the throne without expressly being invited, in other words, if he invited you, commanded you, you could show up, if you showed up without an express invitation and he did not hold out the scepter of acceptance, the automatic result was execution. Now, most of us want to do the right thing, but not at the risk of our lives. That makes you think two or three times. Esther had counted the cost and decided it was worth it. Remember when Mordecai told her, she said, you fast for me for three days, night and day. I and my maidens inside the harem, we're going to fast night and day for three days. After we fast and pray, I'm going into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. That's rolling the dice. How much do we trust the Lord? Some things are worth disobeying the law for. Some things are worth dying for. Not everything's worth dying for. Trying to save your people from genocide was worth dying for. And we have to ask ourselves, anything in our lives worth dying for? See, when you decided to follow Jesus, you signed the title deed of your entire life over to Christ. Jesus is both your Savior and he's your Lord. And Lord means owner and master. Now, when you own something, you do with it exactly as you choose, correct? Because you both own it and you're master of it. You and I belong to Jesus. He paid for us. We are not our own. We're bought with a price. None of us knows what the cost of following Jesus will be. 
What did Jesus say? Take up your cross daily and follow me. Now, the cross in that era was an instrument of death. Take up your cross means die. Die to what? Well, most of us are not called to be martyrs, but we are called every day to lay down our life for him. Lay down our time for him. Time is life. So if you laid down the last 168 hours for the glory of Jesus Christ, you died to your selfishness, and you lived for the glory of Jesus Christ. So this is very, very practical. Dying to self simply means you wake up in the morning and say, Lord, what's your plan for today? You have a plan for me today, and I want to do that plan. That's dying to selfishness and living to what he has in mind for us for that day. See, we don't know what everything is, but Jesus does. Because he laid down his life. He laid down it all. He died in our place. So when we come to Christ, we sign a blank check. Who fills in the amount? Jesus fills in the amount every day. What it's going to cost, one day at a time. See, it's, it's fascinating. We always think that following Jesus means problems. Well, if I follow Jesus, you know, it's going to be illness. It's going to be a relational heartbreak. It's going to be a dream that didn't happen. It's going to be a financial crisis. It's going to be an unexpected accident. And all of those are possible. God may allow you, choose to, cause you to suffer for his glory. But what about if it means following Jesus means that you get blessed? What happens if you have a satisfying career? What about if you get promoted? What about if you've been blessed with a good marriage, a good family, good nieces and nephews, good friends? What a blessing. I was going to say good health. I thought I better say reasonable health. Right? <laughs> Wonderful vacations. How about decent vacations, right? The respect of your peers. How you handle success is probably a bigger test of your character than how you handle failure and problem and trouble. Regardless, we need to understand that God will never do anything in our life that is not in our long-term best interest. No matter what he brings in your life, it is always in your long-term best interest. He wants to make us like Jesus, and he's willing to do anything to make us like Jesus. And we often go to the Lord, I have, and said, Lord, right now, I know that my mind agrees with it, but my flesh would like you to love me less. Turn the heat down, you know? And the Lord says, Brad, I know what you need more than you know what you need. Your circumstances are custom designed by me to shape you like my son. And I'm doing it because I love you. Did you ever get paddled by a parent decades ago, and they said, this hurts me more than this hurts you. And how many of you as a child said, yeah, I, I really understand that, Mom and Dad. I, I get that. No. It's fascinating. When I paddled our children, I never said that. Because I'm not sure it hurt me more than it hurt them. But when Jesus loved us, it hurt him. It cost everything. Whatever it costs us to serve Jesus in this life, it's worth it. 
It's worth it. I invite you to a life of gambling, spiritually speaking. Put it on the line every day. You can never lose by trusting Jesus with whatever's going on in your world. Christ is worth it all. And we have these two examples, Timothy and Epaphroditus, who did that. Let's review this, and then we'll do prayer and praises. Principle number one. People who serve Christ make his priorities their passion. Not their priorities, his priorities. And caring for people is his priority. Number two. People who serve Christ endure hardships. I did not say they like hardships. I said they endure hardships. And hardships produce maturity, and they produce spiritual usefulness. The people that God uses most often are people who have been hurt. Because how do you love the hurting until you understand what it's like to have a broken heart? So many, many times God's servants have been hurt and have a lot of scar tissue, and God can work mightily through them because they understand what it's like to minister to hurting people because they have hurts. Number three, people who serve Christ adjust their schedules in order to meet the needs of others. We regard that as interruptions. You know, we have an agenda for the day, and you get a phone call that changes your day. You know, you need to do this or you need to do that. Or you have a friend who calls up, and there goes 45 minutes of your day talking to a hurting friend, and you want to do the laundry desperately. <laughs> You're right. Someone told me once, and I thought it was really true, never cry over anything that can't cry over you. There's all sorts of tasks that can wait. Hurting people need you now. Lastly, before Tom comes up and does prayer and praise with people who serve Christ accept the risk of not knowing all the consequences of their commitment to follow him. So this week, you're going to have consequences. Things are going to happen. And you weren't anticipating that. And God's going to write something in that blank check, and you go, whoa, that's a big check he wrote. Right? You've already signed the check. Your father knows what you need. And this week, it may be an unexpected blessing you never expected. By the way, those blessings are also tests. How do you manage the blessings? How do you manage the good stuff, right? It's worth it to serve Christ regardless of the cost because he understands that. Thank you all for listening. This was a, I mean, this is a rich lesson. This is a lot of nutrition for this week. Hopefully you'll be chewing on it. Read ahead, Lord willing. We'll start Philippians 3 next week. I love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.